Deloitte Private serves privately held and family-owned companies and advises them on addressing a range of issues, from growth, talent, and succession, to the potential and perils of AI. Connect with us at Deloitte.com slash US slash private. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Automatically keeps out the sounds you don't want to hear so you can listen to your music. And lowers your music to let in the sounds you do need to hear. Hi there. Hi, what can I get you? I'll have a strawberry mango coconut probiotic smoothie with wheatgrass. Anything else? Extra wheatgrass. Here you go. AirPods Pro with adaptive audio. Available on AirPods Pro second generation when enabled. Hi, everyone. So, prolonged frigid temperatures this past weekend caused electricity demand in the Texas Power Grid, or ERCOT, to explode and tripped more than a third of the state's generation offline. This sent power prices careening towards the $9,000 per megawatt hour market price cap. Of course, any plant that managed to stay online hit the jackpot. Real-time power sales on February 17th totaled nearly $10 billion, but many were not able to stay online. The extreme cold resulted in more than 30,000 megawatts of power plant outages, in a situation where demand outstripped supply by 30%. And as most of us will know by now, this resulted in millions of Texans without power, heat, and clean water. We have to note that our hearts go out to our friends, family, colleagues, and everyone impacted by the storm, and we really hope things get back online as soon as possible. This week on the show... We've got Anastasia Dialinus, head of U.S. oil research, and Nick Steckler, head of North American Power Research for PNF. They're going to tell us about how the state's power, oil, and gas sectors all went down at once, and what Texas might consider to build back and build back better. BNF users can find ongoing coverage of U.S. power, oil, and gas markets on BNF.com, the BNF mobile app, and the Bloomberg Terminal. As a reminder, BNF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and you can hear the full disclaimer at the end of the show. I'm Mark Taylor, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNF podcast. Hi, Nick. Hi, Anna. Hey. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining us today. So the first thing I guess we should jump into really with this topic is how did we get here? One of the first things to specify comparing it to other blackouts is that it actually wasn't the grid itself as much that failed, but more the power supply. So if we break down the electricity chain as generators, big power lines, smaller power lines, and then customers and and their uh, meters and things. It's really a shortfall on the power generation side that's being experienced right now, and it's one that we really have rarely ever seen before. So the the size of this capacity shortfall in Texas, the number of generators that are out and the customers that have been uh, cut off as a result is, is enormous. So how did this capacity shortfall happen? The timeline of events breaks down like this. Texas was starting to see very unseasonably cold weather going into Valentine's Day weekend. So February 12th, 13th, by Valentine's Day, the electric demand in Texas was already at the extreme planning scenario. So not what they were expecting, but already their 95th percentile extreme case by Valentine's Day. And then by the next day, by President's Day, February 15th, demand was set to blow past that and hit summer levels. And to, to emphasize how critical that is, Texas is a summer peaking system. So winter is usually pretty relaxed in Texas. Generators, generally their business model, especially if they're peaking generators, is to really gear up for the summer. They make a lot of their money in the summer because demand is highest in the summer. It's about 25% higher in the summer. But this time we saw summer level demand just pop up in Texas and the grid operator 
going into that weekend, under forecast demand by about 25%. And that led to a, a sizable, a similar capacity shortfall and a lot of customers having to be shut off as a result. The, the second thing, which is also very important, which is once we account for the fact that plants weren't really ready for this, they weren't expecting this, they weren't expecting such a rare storm to occur, that storm came through and knocked a lot of plants offline with its physical force, with the cold and with the ice. So it's really two parts. Plants weren't ready for just the sheer amount of demand, but then once it hit, the ones that were online, the plants that were online, got hit and taken out in, in record numbers. A couple things. What does it mean to get ready for summer demand? What are they doing right now, typically, to prep for, for summer? So normally, ahead of the summer, you'll see plants getting ready, uh, you know, staffing, reviewing equipment, making sure that their failure rate is going to be really low, generally so they can capture price spikes, because that is when they make the most of their money. Some plants that uh, don't see a big revenue opportunity in the winter will just sometimes shut down for for the time being and, and wait till summer. And so they rely on the guidance from the grid operator to be ready to go. And in this case, the grid operator was expecting about 58 gigawatts of demand for the winter as peak. And we ended up seeing about 75 gigawatts of demand that customers wanted. I say wanted because the customers never actually got to pull that much demand because they got curtailed, but that's where it was headed going into February 15th. Can you explain that a little bit, that concept a little bit for people that might not be familiar? They got curtailed. What does that mean? Yeah, so the instruction from the grid operator, which is called ERCOT, is to all the, the utilities, the different electric utilities in Texas, to shut off different parts of their regional grids. And that's to conserve energy because there was no way that ERCOT had enough capacity to be able to meet all 75 gigawatts of, of demand in the market. So at a, as a matter of conservation and keeping the grid afloat, they had to tell the regional utilities, hey, go go flip off some of your different substations and, and pull customers offline. Okay, so some of them got curtailed, but you also said that some couldn't turn on at all. Why is that? You know, I, I heard on a, another podcast this morning that, you know, plants in North Dakota, South Dakota, they, they run in the winter gas plants. Why couldn't the ones in Texas? Why did they, I guess you said they froze? Looking at the data on outages, which is still coming in, right? We're still in the middle of this as of today. But plants across all different types, so all generation technologies, coal, nuclear, natural gas, wind, have seen issues with freezing, so ice accumulating, components locking up. Probably the biggest issue we've seen so far, and it makes sense it's the biggest issue because natural gas is the largest share of the ERCOT power mix, is that, that plants can't get fuel. Natural gas plants not getting fuel is probably the, the largest source of, of outage. I mean, the freeze not only affects plants and the machinery at the power plants themselves, but also is definitely hitting the oil fields. Texas is home to about 25% of U.S. natural gas and about half of oil production, right? It's a huge state when it comes to supply of oil and gas. But even some of the biggest oil fields, like the Permian out in West Texas, got snow and ice and, and freezing cold temperatures. And again, just like with PowerGen, Cold temperatures are certainly not unique to oil and gas production. North Dakota gets them all the time, but you need to be ready for them. And the things that can happen in oil and gas production is that first, all reservoirs not only have oil and gas in them, but a good amount of water. That water has to be extracted with the oil and gas and then processed and separated from the gas stream and the oil stream that can then flow on to customers. 
If it's freezing, that water can freeze in the pipes and freeze in the valves if they're not insulated and weatherized. And that is exactly what was happening. And so suddenly they couldn't extract as much oil and gas. Liquids are freezing in the pipelines because a lot of pipelines, especially out in the fields in West Texas, are above ground because they're not used to being cold, as opposed to in other parts of the country where they'll bury them to keep them a bit warmer. So a lot of the oil and gas infrastructure was also freezing up and having a lot of, of issues due to the cold weather. And that meant that a lot of producers had to shut in wells, shut in production, um, and production has dropped off considerably. We've heard reports of up to you know 60 to 80 percent of some of the production out in Permian might be shut in. Occidental, some other companies have announced that they've had to shut significant parts of their operations as well. So let's pause there for a second. And, you know, we said at the top, we're going to talk about building back better. So one issue I guess we've uncovered is supply. What would it mean to build back better here? Bury the pipes or how else would they weatherize them? And would it be worth it? So I think one of the big questions here is just how do you solve this? Like, what's the what's the answer to this problem to make sure it doesn't happen again? And one of the things that I think both regulators, policymakers, oil and gas companies themselves, power companies will have to determine is what's the likelihood of this type of event to happen again? Like, what's the necessity to build back better or to significantly change the infrastructure? Because there are things that can be done from the oil and gas perspective. You could insulate pipes, bury them weatherize equipment. All of that is fairly costly. It has a lot of capital expense. You think about pipelines, especially. I mean, some of them are small, but some can go hundreds, thousands of miles, right? So to instigate reform at that level is going to be a huge investment in infrastructure. Um, And this is oil and gas infrastructure. The sector is trying to cut back on capital costs, not grow them. In general, you know, there's a lot of hesitancy to even invest in new pipelines, updated pipelines anyways. So whether or not you want to put all that money into investing in this infrastructure, if this is a once in a hundred year storm, um, it's unclear if that will be worthwhile. But there are maybe things on the, especially on the oil and gas side that you could do that could help at least alleviate it. Like one thing, as Nick mentioned, is there's a lot of policies, emergency measures being called in on the gas side to prioritize different customer bases. So like if you think about U.S. natural gas, sure, it goes to power homes for heating, it goes to electricity generation, but we also have sizable markets for exports, both pipelines to Mexico, export via LNG terminals. A lot of industrial facilities utilize natural gas. Uh, Texas exports a lot of it out of state to places like California. The governor and others have tried to put in emergency measures saying, please, like industrial facilities have kind of stopped running for the most part. Um, We've had oil refineries, a lot of Exxon's refineries have shut down and are returning any gas and power that they would normally use to the grid to try and help increase that supply. A lot of the LNG terminals have stopped exports and any gas that they usually would receive is therefore available to the grid. Does that help if the pipes are frozen? Well, so there's two things, right? Like the pipes out in the oil fields are probably frozen and having trouble getting gas back to supply. There's underground storage across the state. There are major pipelines that are underground and better protected. So there is some flexibility within the system where gas can move. And that is, I think, the question. If any gas that is available should be prioritized to the customers that need it, essentially. So if we're talking about frozen gas lines, you know, getting to to gas plants, it's not necessarily like at the plant itself, but it's somewhere along the miles and miles of pipeline that's blocking the gas from getting to that plant, most likely. Yeah. On on natural gas, another key thing to remember, too, is that the water vapor is only present in the gas until it's processed. Once natural gas is processed at a processing plant, which is usually pretty close to the oil field itself, then it becomes almost pure methane or pipeline spec methane. 
that is not going to freeze as easily at current temperatures, right? The trouble is when it's still towards the wellhead mixed with water, that water vapor freezes, and then you have sort of a slushy mix trying to flow through this pipe of sort of fro semi-frozen water and some natural gas. Oil pipelines have also seen some freezing issues where the oil thickens or starts to freeze, and so therefore some, a lot of oil pipelines have stopped flowing. But on the natural gas side, once you're talking about pipelines kind of closer to the city center, near the demand markets, those are probably able to flow any gas that is in them. But it's probably just not reaching that far because of the freezing at the source. Exactly. And any, any gas that does get there, you want to make sure it's available for home heating and power gen is sort of the two prioritized uses for it. I know. I like your point that investors and regulators are going to have to decide whether this is going to be, in the future going to be a likely enough occurrence to invest in these things. Texas is an interesting situation on the power side because it's such a deregulated power market relative to the other regions that if things proceed as normal and regulators don't step in and start to require any of this stuff, the way the market bakes in this probability is through power prices. So power prices are at their cap right now, basically $9,000 for the last few days. Generators that are able to survive this are making years worth of revenue in just these few days. And if the market stays as is, you know, assuming there's no major overhaul of the market, going forward, investors that own these power plants will say, maybe it's worth paying 5% more for our uh, wind turbine kit to have a heater that can heat the blades and help us capture those price spikes when they happen. What's it going to be one every, once every 10 years? I don't, I don't know, but that's the math, that they're, the probability that they're going to be looking at. We could also see, of course, regulators come in and just mandate something. In PJM, in the mid-Atlantic, in the northeast U.S. power markets, gas power plants are mandated for reliability purposes to have oil tanks on site. So one to five days of oil and also the gas turbines have to be able to burn that oil. So there's, there's also regulatory measures that could require plants to do those types of things. But investors, like I said, might also just choose to do it in ERCOT to be, able to, to be available during these times and capitalize on really expensive power. And let's not forget, this is Texas, right? It prides itself on not too much regulation. Has there been a hint of which way it's likely to go, in investor-driven or regulation-driven? There's a lot of debate about it. There's a lot of philosophical debate about the markets. And there, there was even before this event. But we're still really dissecting what exactly happened. ERCOT really hasn't released all that much information. I think they're busy taking care of get, just getting people power as soon as possible. But soon after, I think there will be a really, really good debate about uh, planning for this, this winter going into it, and then the physical effects of the storm on the power plants and, and which plants fared better. Right now, it's not obvious that one, uh, one particular plant was really guilty of, of of failing more than, than any other. Deloitte Private. Private companies seek bold innovation, sector-defining ideas, and clear roadmaps for technology and workforce transformation. Deloitte Private's tailored services and solutions and cutting-edge tools can allow private companies to gain access to industry insights that you can use to identify opportunities and build your future. Connect with us at Deloitte.com slash US slash private. So we've talked about supply, uh, we've talked about power plants and, and making those a bit more resilient, and the decision whether to regulate or invest in resiliency. We should probably talk a minute about 
Texas as an island. You know, they probably could have solved this uh, if they were connected to another source of power, another market. Is that is that fair to say? It is. There's very little electrical connection to the neighboring grids. It's a priority of the the Biden administration to harden the transmission, the U.S. transmission network, improve electrical resiliency. Texas has kept it that way for you know as, as long as they they could. They, they uh, benefit from not having to be regulated by the, the federal the federal regulator FERC uh, because they don't exchange much power with with their neighbors. And so we could see more interconnection. It definitely would have helped to be more interconnected with with the, the neighboring regions. It would have just been more supply that was available into the market when uh, basically 40% of the fleet was offline and they were, had this, this unprecedented capacity shortfall. So at the same time, like I said, they, they might be reluctant to make those connections because of the, because of the regulatory uh, implications. And there's a parallel here to what happened in California last summer there were impacts across the whole region. It wasn't just Texas. The reason we're talking about Texas today is because it was uh, impacted the worst and the, the severity of the cutoffs was so extreme. It's, most of the millions of people that are without power are in Texas. But throughout the Midwest, the storm really took a toll. And last summer when we were talking about California, it was a similar story. California was, was hit really badly by the heat wave, but so were its neighbors. And so the, the connections between regions were, were a bit, little bit contentious because when one region is suffering, they're not necessarily going to be pushing power to, to the other. It's hard to predict what the interconnections would really do, but I think in general there's a, a, a push to improve infrastructure and, and build a more robust power grid. I don't anticipate there'll be many regulatory changes on, I haven't heard of much talk around regulatory changes on the gas side. So the things I could see happening would be requiring more winterization of gas infrastructure. And the other one would be some type of more formalized prioritization of important customers if there is a a shortage of gas, right? But that's difficult because especially if you look at Texas and U.S. gas markets in general, exports are sort of a major story nowadays and a major part of revenue. And it's winter. And so to say that to try and be increasing our exports of things like LNG and then to suddenly tell all the customers that are trying to buy it, well, actually, there's also this big risk that in the middle of winter when it might be cold in Asia and Europe, we might actually cut off that supply because we have cold here in the U.S. That's not a great story to customers, especially when there's already questions around the emissions associated with US LNG and you know, the cost and everything else. So I anticipate there'd be a lot of pushback in terms of formally mandating sort of stay within the state or prioritization of state actors outside of a free market sort of system um, and better controls in place. You can also question you know, Texas and all the storage that is in Texas is still a major supply to other parts of the country even, right? And a lot of the country is having a lot of cold weather as well. So this isn't just sort of Texas as an island and you can treat it as such. You have to remember that there are other customers at the other end of that who are also being cut off from supplies. It sounds like you're saying that the the producers don't need regulators to tell them that they just missed an opportunity to sell a lot more gas. Yeah, I think that would be right. But whether or not they'll invest in winterization is another question, too, because as I mentioned, a lot of producers are really, really focused on cutting capital expenditure right now. Investing in new production is not a priority. Certainly investing in new infrastructure is probably not a priority. Their prioritization is debt reduction. Their prioritization is increasing cash flow, increasing dividends to shareholders. And so 
to try and fit in, you know, increased expenditure on winterization might be also tough because they're trying to balance out whether or not they grow production 5% or 2%, let alone, you know, don't invest in new production, don't invest in new drilling and instead invest in winterizing existing pieces. So again, that comes back to, do we think this is a fluke event or is it going to happen every winter? That will, I think, be the deciding factor there. There's so many parallels on the power side because the ERCOT market has embraced these price spikes as the signal to investors. And when they miss them, they say, these are the steps that I need to take to be able to be there and capture that that price spike next time. But the, I think the question going forward on the power side is just because so many people were adversely impacted uh, and reliability is really so important for, for power that consumers and investors alike, I don't know if they're going to be able to tolerate this volatility going forward. So do you think there will be a policy intervention or do you think the market will figure it out itself on the power side? It's really hard to predict. Texas is the only market like this in the United States. The other regional energy markets have, have opted for a capacity market mechanism where they do pay plants just to be there and be around and do all the accounting to make sure that there's enough uh, megawatts on that you know, Super Bowl Sunday, that major day where everybody's going to be pulling power. And, and Texas really just leaves it to the, to the, the, price, the price opportunity for, for power plants to make money. So uh, it seems like the, the standard way forward, if they weren't to change their market design, would be for ERCOT to next time around say, okay, we need to, in our long-term planning, signal that there should be more power in the winter and potentially juice up the one tool that they have, which is their scarcity adder, which adds a little bit of, actually quite a lot of, of potency to real-time energy prices. But, but that's really it. So it would still be investors just betting that, that there might be a scarcity in the winter and that they could, could make more money during those periods selling energy, as opposed to getting a direct payment for being around and being available throughout the year. In the end, the retail consumer pays for all of this. I guess, right? Under that model. Right. So is this going to be end up being a bunch of angry Texans with high, very high electricity bills? The actual math could be a bit hard for consumers to do, but what regulators and economists are going to do is they're going to look at the average price of power over time in Texas, which has been quite cheap in a lot of years. Because of competition, because of this, right? Because, because of competition and because of cheap natural gas. But then you also have to account for these periods and these massive blowups. And that's why I say, I don't know. We'll, we'll see when we average it out, which region has cheaper power. If let's say they work out to be roughly the same, I don't know if consumers would want to opt for this uh, more volatile model. And then, of course, we need to look at the number of hours and the number of c customers that were without power and compare that. Because I know this period is definitely way beyond what's what's considered acceptable. Nick, I have a question. What's the role, if we think forward sort of longer term, what's the role of batteries and electric vehicles? Like, are they going to potentially be a saving grace in a situation like this? I mean, I know there's a lot of stories of Texans at the moment going into their cars, turning on the engine and using that as a way to stay warm, heat up during when their house doesn't have power. Like if everybody has electric vehicles, can they suddenly just charge their house off their car? Will batteries perform better in a situation like this? And if there were more batteries on the grid, would that have helped or no? Yeah, it begs the question what other technologies might have helped. In the, in the immediate term, I, I listed some of the possible solutions. Natural gas plants could have oil on site. Consumers could definitely have more generation capacity at their homes. 
uh, home gen sets, batteries of course, potentially solar paired with batteries is going to be a, a rush for, for consumers to you know outfit their homes to be better equipped. But in the longer term, when we look at the large scale fleet of generators, given that every single type of generator had had problems, I think it's kind of a win for the alternative technologies. As we look to move to higher and higher penetrations of clean energy on the grid, let's say, let's take Biden's plan of getting to 100% clean. To achieve that, you need to replace natural gas. And this looks more like a mark on natural gas's record than anything else, which uh, means natural gas is usually a fairly reliable fuel. It's seen as the backup. It's there when, when the wind isn't blowing. It's uh, to be clear, you know, wind and natural gas are going to be very important for quite a while on the grid. But in getting to the, the high penetrations that a lot of policymakers want, this might be an indicator that we really do need some other technology that might be available. Uh, and I think people might look to uh, more battery storage, of course. But will it have enough duration? It, we're not sure yet. We're not sure if uh, lithium-ion batteries could ride through multiple days like this. Maybe it's a win for small-scale nuclear, for advanced nuclear reactors, which have been getting slaughtered by cheap natural gas. No, you know, there's been R&D spending, but nobody wants to really take a bet on one of those because they're so much more expensive. Well, small-scale nuclear could have really raked it in during this period if it was available, and, and it would have been a win for them over natural gas and potentially other technologies as well. So can you close us out with really just when do you think Texans will get power again? Yeah, so we've been talking about the long-term implications for the power mix, but the truth is the situation is still really dire right now. And the grid operators bringing plants back online to have the capacity to be able to supply customers, and once those plants are ready, they're reconnecting customers. They are still, right now, it's uh, Thursday, and they are in the uh, worst form of cutoffs, so the most extreme conservation measures. Those This is going to extend until Friday, and... Uh, at that point, we could start to see if the generation capacity is ready. We could start to see uh, more of the Texas power grid connecting back up to customers and, and people getting power. But it, that the, this weekend feels like the most optimistic scenario for everyone having power back. Hope they get it back as soon as they possibly can. Nick, Anna, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute, nor should it be construed as, investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. 
he's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Business Week, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> 